Good day and welcome to the latest episode of the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today we are going to talk to Casey Finlinson, who is the lead horticulturist and landscape architect for the Central Utah Water Conservancy District. He talks about some of his favorite plants that look beautiful in the yard that actually can help save lots of water. Later on, I discuss four beautiful perennials, two that bloom in the summer and two that bloom in the fall that works well in our yard. And then we talk about why our lawns are turning brown. We often assume it's just lawn stress, but there are actually many things that can kill our lawn. And finally, intern Annie Smith discusses a new recipe, apricot chicken, using fresh local apricots. I am at the Central Utah Gardens with Casey Finlinson, who is the garden manager, and I wanted to cover several plants that you have grown over the last years. First one you told me about was false indigo. Yep, that's one that, uh, and it's almost a a shrub-like perennial. It doesn't ever get woody materials in it, but it gets as big as a shrub, and once it's done flowering, it flowers in the spring with a purple flower on some spikes and then you can cut those off and it just looks like a nice shrub through for the rest of the season. The flowers look very similar to lupin, but they're a lot bigger. Yeah. And you'd mentioned that there's actually newer varieties come out that are more dwarf, different colors. And so there's, it sounds like there's been a lot of breeding. I really like the original. The, that's my favorite one, but it's fun to look at some of the other ones. So it's kind of a bluish purple color, uh, but we've got like a lemon meringue. That's a, a yellow color. And there's a, I, I think it's like raspberry lemonade or something, kind of a mix of red and yellow. We have a Dutch chocolate one that's kind of a brownish purple. So lots of fun different colors out there. So these, if you need a taller perennial, especially spring and early summer blooming, these should be considered in, in the garden centers and talking to you, they're apparently becoming a lot more available. And so sometimes these might be labeled Baptisia or how did you, how do you pronounce it? Oh, I just say Bep- Baptisia. Australis is what it's okay. called. So that's what you would look for. There's a few plants at the garden centers called false indigo or indigo bush, but this is the particular one is the baptisia or baptisia that we're talking about. So the next plant that you mentioned is por- porcupine grass, which is a type of miscanthus for those that are familiar with the grasses. Yep. And that one is uh, a favorite of mine just because it gets so tall, but it also has the stripes. So if you're familiar with the zebra grass, this looks very similar to zebra grass, but it doesn't uh, tend to fall over like the, the zebra grass does. It stays upright and it doesn't take a lot of maintenance, so you just cut it back once a year, either in the fall or spring, and we generally cut ours back in the, in the fall just because it flops over once the snows hit it. But it can get, uh, the ones we have here, get at least taller, tall or taller than I am, which is about six feet. And then it gets plumes on top of that, so it can get up to eight feet tall. So this is one, if you need a grass, that it will eventually form a screen or a large focal point that would be very usable because it doesn't fall over like a lot of other tall grasses do. So next on the list was coneflower. Yeah, I just, I've always been a fan of, of the coneflowers, uh, particularly, you know, the purple coneflower. And there's, 
they've got a lot of cool varieties of those now too. One of my favorites is the the Magnus because it's got a, a big purple flower on it. Uh, but it, we also have uh, one out out in the garden here called the Hot Summer, which starts out kind of an orangey and fades to red, and then eventually to kind of a purpley red. So it kind of changes colors as it as it grows. How long do they bloom for you? Like each flower, the plants themselves, it's going to be for a couple months, maybe a month and a half. They've started blooming about now, and we'll go till through the fall. That's great, because I was talking to Mike Karen yesterday, who's our horticulturist at Thanksgiving Point, and he was mentioning that there's kind of a lull in the middle of the summer in blooming trees and shrubs. And, and I think these cone flowers, and we're talking about echinacea, are a great option for those mid to late summer flowers. Yeah, and the nice thing about these two, this is a full sun flower that we have growing in the shade. So it can be full sun or part shade. It's actually pretty good either way and still flowers pretty well. So you'd be really comfortable with it on at least on an east exposure to where it got a lot of afternoon shade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think on a north exposure? Would you attempt that? I would definitely try it. I guess I need to. to <laughs> but uh, I, I'm all about experimenting because, you know, a label will say one thing, but it's not always, it doesn't understand every circumstance No, they, they write there. those labels for a national audience and not the Intermountain West. Rollo sumac. You know, sumac, when people hear that, maybe they don't think of beauty or my favorite plant. But I really like the, the Grolos. It's a version of the fragrant sumac, but it doesn't get as big. So it only gets two to three feet tall and uh, can get six to eight feet wide. So it can cover a big space if you're just looking to kind of cover a hillside or need some kind of ground cover. But it's a shrub and uh, can grow in pretty poor soil conditions. That's what I like about it with not a lot of water. You had mentioned that you know of locations where it receives only rainfall and what it gets from snow and it has been perfectly happy. Yep. No supplemental water and it's grown just fine. Well, you'll sometimes see these on hillsides or areas of the yard that are, I won't call them low maintenance, but they needed a screen to fill in. They'll get, the normal ones get taller, but you also mentioned in the fall that they have another attribute. Yeah, it's a really nice red color as long as they get some pretty good sun. And then we get good fall color, red color that's pretty bright and uh, exciting to see. A good replacement for something like dwarf Dwarf burning bush. Burning bush, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and those are, for as pretty as they are, I, those are high-maintenance, oftentimes short-lived plants. And so when people ask me about the burning bush, yes, they're gorgeous, but you plant a line of 10 of them, and in 10 years, three or four are dead, unless you do a lot to keep them healthy. And these sumacs are just on the opposite end of the spectrum. And one thing with them is they do spread and they can get three or four feet tall, just left to their own devices. But there's a lot of plantings of them on center street in Provo near the Newskin building that they keep hedged to 18 inches as a ground cover. Then one more that's kind of a sleeper that's just barely making it into garden centers, but the dwarf twisted scotch pine. This is one that we planted here in our garden five years ago, but uh, this dwarf twisted scotch pine is about four feet tall and four feet wide in a 10-year period, and ours is almost to three feet tall and wide now, and we've had it here for five years. It'll eventually get a little bit larger than that, but it's pretty slow growing. 
the the twisted part comes from the the needles that are kind of twisted needles and just a fun little evergreen to to plant in your shrub bed that's not going to take up a lot of space looking at the pictures of them online and then also in the garden they have kind of at least the pictures had a little bit of a mounded shape maybe a little bit conical um, shape to them but yeah. if you need a specimen pine you know especially in areas that not really terrible soil but poor soils and once you get these established they're fairly water wise maybe deep water what every 10 days to two weeks right yeah and uh, then the other thing with the scotch pine is they usually will survive heber or logan just fine and so if you have live in a colder mountain valley this would be very useful also it's got a deep green color to it which i really like as well so it's just plus the fact that it is an evergreen so it will keep that Keller, give you some kind of winter interest. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? Um, well, I guess I would just say go go visit your local water conservation garden and see what it's all about because uh, sometimes people imagine if, as soon as they hear water conservation that it's going to be just a bunch of cacti and lava rocks, and it's not like that at all. We can, This property here, we cut our water use in basically in half just by uh, removing a lot of the lawn. We still have lawn, but then putting all these really awesome plants in here that don't take a lot of water. So So, thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it. The spring flower season is pretty much done. All of those beautiful perennials that we plant in our yard have finished and right now many yards suffer from a lack of color because we like to shop in the spring and perennials available in the spring generally bloom in the spring. So I wanted to talk about two summer blooming perennials and two fall blooming perennials that will help add color that are relatively easy to grow. The first one is called Coreopsis or sometimes tick seed. C-O-R-E-O-P-S-I-S, or tick seed, is like T-I-C-K-S-E-E-D. Coreopsis is a very popular aster family plant that has usually orange or yellow flowers that will bloom sometime in, in June until usually late July or in mid-August, depending on the variety and where you live in Utah. If you live in a colder valley, those bloom times will be delayed a few weeks. Coreopsis is very easy to grow. It can be relatively drought hardy in that it would survive just fine on being watered 12 inches deep once weekly. If you actually water it with lawn sprinklers, many of the species can get fairly large. The yellow flowers oftentimes are double or single and will look somewhat like an orange or a yellow marigold. And since these bloom so profusely and they're so free-blooming, one of the complaints about them, and I won't really call it a complaint because I think this is more just yard maintenance, is that a few times a week they need to be deadheaded. And so that involves taking some scissors or your fingernail and just plucking off the dead flowers. Deadheading maintains the look of the plant, and oftentimes, if it's done in a timely manner, will 
keep the plant blooming longer because it's getting angry with you taking its flowers off where it's trying to produce seeds. It can't produce seeds, and so it keeps producing more flowers. Tick seeds do best in full sun, and they don't tolerate waterlogged soils. Now, they will grow in clay just fine, but you need to manage your water so that they don't have standing water or extremely wet soil around them all the time. Now, the next perennial I want to talk about is called perennial hibiscus. Sometimes these are called um, herbaceous hibiscus, and they're ones that have been around for a long time, but the old-fashioned types, if mom grew them or grandma grew them, got super tall. And you would oftentimes have to stake them or somehow put cages around them so that they did not flop over, but they would start blooming in usually mid to late July. And then the newer varieties will bloom oftentimes until mid-September or sometimes even into October. These are also known as dinner plate hibiscus or swamp mallow or sometimes confederate swamp mallow because the species that we're using that have been hybridized are mostly native to the southeastern United States. Perennial hibiscus are very easy to grow. One thing about them is they're not really drought hardy, but they will survive fine off average lawn water. So if your sprinklers are hitting, most often they're okay, but you still will want to check the soil, especially the first year that they're planted. So because they don't have roots established yet and pushed out into the soil. But once they're established, as long as they're getting water, they're happy. Now, a lot of the newer varieties will be a little bit more packed and they don't need to be staked. And so I would really recommend buying modern hybrids. There's new varieties coming out all the time. Lots of um, pinks, reds, whites, lavender, um, lighter purple. I don't want to say a true purple, but more lavender purple. The perennial hibiscus also sometimes come with red leaves, which adds to their ornament. So even when they're not in flower, you have the foliage color and texture that adds to the beauty of the landscape. One thing to consider with perennial hibiscus is their size. They do need some room, and so plan on them getting three to four feet, as I've already mentioned. And then they oftentimes don't bloom out, or I should say leaf out, in the spring very early. They love heat, and so they're not going to peak their heads above ground until we're regularly in the high 70s and 80s. So for the Wasatch Front, that often means we won't see leaf formation until sometimes early to mid-June. Not usually that late, but I've seen it. And so people will think they're dead because they don't come back and all of a sudden they're there. But when they do pop out of the ground, they can grow easily six inches a week. Now, I wanted to talk about a couple of fall blooming perennials. And the first one is chrysanthemums. There are two general classes of chrysanthemum that you can buy. One we'll call floral mums or floral chrysanthemums. And those are the ones you buy from floral shops or grocery stores to put on graves and to give to people 
that for appreciation or condolences. They're very beautiful, but if you plant them in the yard, they oftentimes will get anywhere from four to six feet tall. And sometimes because they are greenhouse grown and the greenhouses know how to manipulate the flowering, when you put them in your yard, they may not set bud in the summer until it's too late to get a lot of fall flowers and those flowers finally open in mid to late October and then they get hit by frost. So you can plant those, but they do come with some problems. The better kind of mum or class of mum that I like to plant are called garden mums. The garden mums will stay a lot more compact and they've been bred to bloom earlier. And so they don't need nearly as much deadheading and they're not nearly as likely to split out and fall over as long, especially as they're not overwatered. Now, the best time to actually plant these floral mums or the garden mums is in the spring to midsummer. The reason for this is, is that you need to give these a chance to root into your native soil. When they're planted in the fall, they've put all their energy into those flowers and they seem to struggle getting their roots established in the fall because their focus is flowering. And I see people have a lot more success with getting these established and having them last for years if they are planted when they're not in flower. So there's still plenty of time right now and uh, you, they will start to become more available at the garden centers. You know, the, all the varieties won't be there, but you can still find some beautiful ones. But it's a great time to get them going. Now, another fall-blooming perennial I wanted to mention is called Japanese anemone or Japanese windflower. Now, most of the windflowers that we are accustomed to bloom in the spring. And they're quite pretty. but there is the Japanese anemone that blooms in the fall. Now, apologies, I keep using anemone and windflower interchangeably, and those names are interchangeable. But the Japanese anemones have leaves that look somewhat like geum, if you're familiar with that plant, or coral bell in their shape. And they like shade. So you can plant them on the east or north side of your home and they're perfectly happy. The Japanese anemones will take a few years to really get established, but once they do, they can get big. Plant on three feet wide to th and three feet tall to sometimes maybe even four feet wide for some of the bigger varieties. But the advantage to these flowers is, is that they are a shade plant that blooms in the fall. And that is really hard to do. And they're easy to grow. They tolerate our soil and they are hardy anywhere in the state where we have population, except for maybe St. George, where it may be too hot. They grow fine in Logan and Heber, as well as places like Draper or Ogden, or even where I am at in Southern Utah County. They seem to tolerate clay soil fine and are just really not fussy plants. So those are some considerations. There's many more perennials that are excellent, but these are some that will be available in garden centers that you should consider for your yard. Mm -hmm.
July is the month where lawns start to turn brown. We get used to these gorgeous green lawns through May and June, and then all of a sudden the 90 to 100 degree weather hits, and within a few weeks, our lawns are starting to turn brown in patches. I'm often asked, why is my lawn brown? And that is actually not a very easy question to answer sometimes. Because investigation has to happen before you can really say why that particular spot or area of the yard is brown. Now, the most common cause of brown lawn is just simply sprinkler inefficiencies. The sprinklers don't hit an area enough, and when it turns really hot, that area of lawn goes dormant. And a way to be able to determine this quite easily is to just get a screwdriver with a long shaft. You take the screwdriver after you've irrigated, say the next morning, and go out to the brown patch and try to stick it into the ground. If it does not go in very easily, then that spot is most likely dry, and you can take a shovel and split the soil open and investigate further, but it just may tell you that you need to put a hose sprinkler on that spot for 15 minutes a couple of times a week or readjust your sprinklers. And when I say that, you may need to check your filters on the sprinklers and things to make sure that they're not clogged up. Now, what happens if the screwdriver penetrates into the soil very easily, indicating that that area is well watered? What you need to do is tug on the grass with your hands and see if the grass pulls out very easily. Now, if you just pull with all your worth, that grass is going to come out and the test will be ruined. But if the grass rips out with no roots or very few roots on it, then it may be insects such as bill bugs or white grubs causing the damage. One other thing you can do is to go to a border area where it's brown and green and get a number 10 can, like a coffee can or just something that size and cut the top and bottom off so you have a cylinder. You could also do this with a fairly wide PVC pipe. You press that into the ground very carefully so that it's in soil contact or as close to soil contact as you can get it. Don't cut yourself. Then you fill that can up with soapy water and wait for a minute or two and see what floats up. The insects in there don't really like the swimming pool you've introduced and so they float to the top and you can take a look and see if you find anything in there. Now, some other things to look for in these areas include insects as you walk. If you're walking along these brown areas especially, and little moths are flying up, then you definitely could have an insect called sod webworm. Now, the control for these... I don't really want to go into too much for here, but Utah State University Extension has multiple fact sheets on lawn pests, and a simple Google search will bring those fact sheets up. Now, let's say that you've determined that there's plenty of water and the grass is not pulling up. The next step is to collect a sample, preferably at the edge of where the damage is, so you have both green and brown grass about four inches wide with about an inch of soil on the bottom 
and you would mail it to the Utah State University Pest Lab for them to look for a fungal disease. Now, there are many fungal diseases that have become quite common over the last 10 years, but necrotic ring spot is very prominent, along with another one called ascochyta, which is far less damaging than necrotic ring spot. But before you spend a lot of money on an on a pesticide to treat the problem, such as a grub killer or a fungicide, it's good to know what the problem actually is. And so you would go to the website utahpests.usu.edu and then click on the menu um, selection where you submit a sample. But that's utahpests.usu.edu. They will get back with you with some treatment options and what they most likely think it is. Sometimes things are just indetermined and you can't really know for sure, but they usually are pretty good. I should also mention that sample submission is $15 to $30, but it's money well spent. So good luck with your lawn. Don't overwater it. Don't overfertilize it. And enjoy the green grass. And I hope you have kids and others that enjoy it too. with Utah State University Extension intern Annie Smith, and she's been back to baking. Annie, what did you make this week? I made homemade apricot chicken. So homemade apricot chicken, which I had some of this afternoon, and it was, again, delicious. And so the fresh produce this week is... Apricots. Apricots, (laughs) yes. Which are ripening right now and will be ripening over the next several weeks. So describe to me the recipe. Um, it's pretty similar to most candied chickens that I've had. It calls for a bunch of normal spices, garlic powder, salt and pepper, ground ginger, uh, some scallions, uh, garlic clove. You have to use them in different steps of the recipe. Um, and then soy sauce and brown sugar, chicken, pretty basic stuff. <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's, and it's, stuff that people would have in their kitchen for the most part. I mean, looking at the list here, the most exotic thing I see is soy sauce. Yeah. And also I forgot the most important part of the recipe, which is the apricot jam. (laughs) That too. So because we're using Fresh Local, you made your own apricot jelly, which isn't really hard to do. Yeah, it's pretty simple. The easiest recipe that I found and the one that I used was... Just taking some apricots, about a fourth cup of lemon juice, and then a bunch of sugar. And you just boil it down like normal and can it. Yeah, and so that's what you're actually using in the recipe. And you can also use a commercial um, apricot jam, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm sure they would work just fine. So describe preparing the chicken. I brought pre-chopped chicken which was easier but if you just buy chicken breast then cut them into one inch pieces then they're pretty easy to cook initially you just add some olive oil and then the salt pepper ginger and garlic powder and scallion and then you cook the chicken about halfway so it's it's mostly done but it's going to cook a little bit more when you add the sauce and the sauce is just the apricot preserves soy sauce and brown sugar and minced garlic and then kind of mix them up really good to make sure you don't have any clumps. 
but then you pour that into the chicken and let it um, let it boil down a little bit so that it gets a little thicker. If you add flour to it, it'll thicken even faster. I forgot to do that, but so it took longer to boil down. But but it looked like it thickened fine. Yeah, it did. One problem that I ran into was it thickened a little bit too much. It started to caramelize because I had it on too high of a heat. So if it starts to get a little too thick or smell like burnt sugar at all, take it off the heat. Your chicken's probably done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's all good. So how long did it take you to prepare? Honestly, it was really easy. Probably, probably like 15 minutes once I had all the spices out. It was was really easy to just mix up. Well, 15 minutes to prepare all of the sauce and get the chicken cooked and then maybe another 10 minutes on top of that to let it simmer down. No, that's excellent. And so it really is something that if you're getting home from work at you know, five or six that you reasonably could cook if you wanted fresh cooked food that was not a super involved recipe. Yeah. And another thing about it is if you want to make it even more of a meal, you can serve it with brown jasmine rice or cut up some broccoli florets and throw them in with the sauce once once the chicken's almost done cooking. And it, I'm assuming, I didn't do it, but I'm assuming it tastes great because Well, to my uneducated palate, when I tried the chicken, I I did think it was delicious. But one thing I thought was this would go over rice very well, or this could very easily be turned into a stir fry with a little bit of cauliflower, broccoli, maybe some carrots or something. But it would lend itself very well to a stir fry. Mm -hmm. I ate it over rice, and it was sticky rice because that's what I had on hand. But it it tasted great that way, and I think it would be really easy to add other ingredients. Oh, that's excellent. And the, it was, again, it sounded like it was easy to make and very delicious, and I appreciate you putting that together. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. 